0: Hello friends, and great to have your company on this special episode of The Myth Pilgrim. Today we're going to have a bit of fun in unpacking the genius of St. Therese of Lisieux through the classical story of Little Women. To do this, I've brought along a guest speaker and a good friend of mine, Sister Catherine Stone. Kat is one of the very epic sisters in the Missionaries of God's Love, uh, the same order that I am part of as a brother. And since the start, we've always had great chats and explorations about the joys and merits of books and stories and other creative things. (laughs) So without further ado, I present Kat to break open today's topic. Okay, cool. Hey, we have a Catherine. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Myth Pilgrim. I'm Sister Catherine. Um yeah look some of our beloved listeners might know who you are but for those who do not who is sister catherine stone
1: well that's a very good question she hails from tasmania originally (laughs) that's really important detail um i was the first overseas sister no, actually, that's not strictly true. That's a very
0: story. From a realm uh, far, far away of Tasmania? Oh, well, I
1: did have to cross the seas, but mm. actually our founding sister was born in Texas, so mm. I don't count at all. <laughs> um, what can I tell you about me? I joined the sisters about 16 or 17 years ago now. That makes me quite old. Um, and since then, I have lived in all the houses or cities we have houses in that's exciting um I spent six years stint as formator that was fun that was around the time when Lawrence joined I think mm. um this is probably where I met you Canberra
0: Canberra yep definitely
1: and these days I live in Sydney I do a fair amount of spiritual direction and talks at youth groups or retreats and that kind of thing, that's probably it's really hard to characterize what we do. Usually I just say spiritual direction because it gives people an idea, but it's not really what the majority of what I do. But yeah. Hmm.
0: And I happen to know because of many uh, lovely conversations you've had in your spare time, or maybe not just in your spare time, maybe in your prayer times, you love reading and we both have a love for literature. Um, can you we tell do. us a little bit about that?
1: um I think I've been a bit of a bookaholic since I learned to read. Maybe my parents learned it was a good way to keep me out of their hair, but I, um, yeah, bookworm's probably the word for it. I um, also grew up in a family without television, so books were like my escape, and I would disappear with a book anytime I got a chance, ask my mother where to find me on a weekend or a weeknight or anything like that, and I'd have a book somewhere. Um, and I got very good at the art of putting down a book and picking up a textbook in order to fool teachers and parents who thought I was studying <laughs> or working and um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice
1: yeah and my my favorite job actually before i joined the sisters was, was in a christian bookshop. Um, so i even translated the hobby into a little bit of it was actually volunteer work but it was a lot of fun cool favorite.
0: yeah that's awesome yeah. and and uh today we um happen to be um exploring one particular book, one particular story um, that you you have a, I think when the way you described it, uh, introduced it to me, was it was one of your childhood favourites or it's got a bit of nostalgia attached to it?
1: Yeah, it was a favourite. I think I probably read it first when I was too young. I reckon I first attempted it when I was about eight or nine um, and I enjoyed it because I can remember playing Little Women with my sister And then we had a third sister come along around that time, and that was really exciting because we're moving towards having our own little women family. And then a brother came along and spoiled the pattern, unfortunately. (laughs) I'll forgive him one day for that. But um, (laughs) the movie came out in 94, and my kind of um, obsession with it grew a little bit. And then I bought my own copy in 96. Um, and because I didn't own many books it became one of those holiday favorites that you go back to when you've finished all the other books that you've Mm. borrowed from everywhere else (laughs) Um, so it became probably a a lifetime favorite over my teenage years Mm
0: -hmm. just for the um, some listeners may not know the familiar or be familiar with the story um, are you actually able to give you know kind of an introduction to the story and and the main storyline, maybe a bit about the author of Louisa May Alcott, of *The Little Women?
1: Um, yes. So Little Women's the story of four sisters, Meg, Jo, Beth, and Amy, and they're growing up in genteel poverty, let's call it, in civil war affected America in the late 19th century. Their father is away at war in um, the American civil war, and the mother is bringing up the girls and she's got a um, particular kind of focus on bringing them up as strong and virtuous women. So the dominating character in the story is the second daughter, Jo, but it's actually the story of all four, hence the title, Little Women. So you meet Meg, the oldest, who's beautiful, talented actress, and a very dutiful and traditional daughter. She's the one that everyone kind of sees gonna get married and have lots of kids. Um, joe is a bit of a tomboy whose ambition is to be a famous writer and she's got the talent for it too beth is a peacemaker and a musician she plays the piano quite beautifully and amy is an artist who longs for elegance and fine society so the story kind of the first major event in the story occurs when the mother asks her daughters to give away their christmas breakfast to a poor family and so the girls you can kind of it's I think one of the beauties of the story is they're real characters. So you watch the girls have this kind of struggle in themselves because they're living in relative poverty. So you you watch them struggle with themselves before reluctantly agreeing to give away their breakfast and they pack it all up in baskets and um, take it down to feed this hungry family. And when they return, they discover that their neighbour has um, noticed them do this and um, he's rich and he's sent over a surprise lunch to make up for their breakfast. So they kind of get more than they gave away. But the result of this is also that the two families get to know each other and the neighbor, well, he's an elderly man, but he's bringing up his grandson, his orphaned grandson, who's about the same age as the girls. So out of this whole Christmas experience, the girls don't just get a Christmas lunch, but they effectively get a brother. So he becomes a close friend of the girls and mm. um, enters into all of their adventures for the rest of the story. So the. um The story kind of then follows the efforts of each sister to achieve her ambition, but also to improve her character. So there's a whole theme running through the book on virtue, really, Mm. becoming good. (laughs) Um, It's quite refreshing in today's world. So like Meg struggles with vanity, Joe struggles with a temper, Beth struggles with shyness and Amy struggles with being materialistic they all struggle with the results of living in poverty, like kind of thing. So the story follows their joys, their disappointments um, over their careers, their love life, sickness, um, and so on. I don't want to give away too much of the story, but I'm thinking as I go, I'm going to have to give it away. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: right. I'm sort of of of
1: assuming half the the listeners have read the book. So, like, kind of in the story, Laurie eventually um, falls in love with Joe, but she's not in love with him. He's just a brother to her. And so there's this whole heartbreaking disappointment in the middle where, you know, the reader's really sitting on Laurie's side, like, why on earth can't you love him, you stupid girl? (laughs) Um, She runs away to the city to work as a tutor just to get some space after refusing him. And and while she's in the city, Jo meets a poor German professor who she unconsciously begins to fall in love with. But in the midst of all of this, Beth, the third sister, basically falls sick and dies. So there's this whole stream of the story that poor old Joe, who's kind of torn apart by refusing and losing essentially her best friend, um, and then dying of homesickness in a strange city, um, comes home to care for her dying sister. And it's a beautiful, like Beth dies, but you watch Joe just grow really depth as a person. um, And ultimately through that sort of selfless love, caring for her sister, um, achieves the virtue and peace that she's been seeking. Um, And then her professor suddenly turns up on the doorstep um, both to propose, which blows her out of the ground a little bit, but also to give her her dream in the publication of her first novel. Back in, I think it was New York she was working in, he was the one that really um, critiqued her work and her kind of falling for the, just writing the sort of rubbish that um, society wanted to read. And he was like, you're worth more than this. Like, I know you're worth more than this. You, you've got much more in you. And then he accidentally, after she left, she left behind um, like stories of her childhood that she'd been scribbling for Beth, um, just as a amusement thing for Beth. And he collected them and put them together and published them for her under the title, Little Women, I think. Oh. Oh. It was this kind of sort of idealized happily ever after in the, the story, but it's a quite like, I could almost cut the end off. I almost don't need that end so much as, for me, the beauty is watching the characters mature and the maturity isn't they all lived happily ever after. The maturity is watching them
0: grow as people. I was actually, um, I found out that the ending of Little Women, so where Joe gets together with the German Friedrich, whatever his name is, that bit was initially the the author, uh, so Louisa May Alcott didn't actually want that ending because she wanted Joe to, you know, having grown in virtue and and confidence as a woman, you know, as an established author, that that was was good enough. But I think the publishers wanted wanted a bit more of a a bow tie ending. So that's interesting, isn't it? Like, yeah. Um, you know you're you're picking up something of why this book is actually a classic because maybe it's um, I mean there's lots of happily ever after books out there but they're they're not bestsellers they haven't had four movie adaptations made of it so there's clearly something about the uh, yeah the growth of each of the yeah and also
1: there's this idea that the parents the march parents they wanted to bring up strong independent young women There's a real like the girls are really um, coached in courage and forgiveness, patience. Like these are the sort of people I would like to spend time with, kind of thing. (laughs) Like there's a real, there's a
0: realness
1: about um what they're kind of trying to build and what she's trying to put across.
0: And this, is, speaking of um, warm Christian families, you know, that inspire virtue in a household full of sisters, um, who all aspire to grow in womanhood, strength and virtue. So St. Therese and, you know, Joe March from Little Women, that's not often two people you talk about side by side. So can you tell us a little bit what, what your insights were?
1: Okay, so obviously you've already drawn out the fact that they're both part of a family of sisters. Um, And I think there's something about a family of just women that um, like already brings out a a similarity of experience between the two. They're actually both um, coming out of the second half of the 19th century as well. So around the same era. I mean, I know Jo March isn't a real person, but we have just mentioned that she's largely, and the family are largely based on Louisa Alcott's experience of um, being the second daughter in a family of four women. But they're also um young women of high ambition um mm. so Jo march um from the beginning of the book you know she wants to be a great great writer and she has strong ambitions for what kind of woman she's going to be but teresa glissier you know that famous quote where she's like i want to be a doctor and a warrior and an apostle and i want to preach the gospel on all five continents at once um like She's not without ambition. They might be in a church context, but, but she's grown up with, with strong ambitions. You know, she like she's the one that's on record saying that, you know, if I have this ambition to be a great saint, it's because God's placed it in my heart. And so he's obviously going to make it come true. Amen. Which he did. Um, but, so you're talking about two ambitious young women. who you, you think that they can conquer the world, if you like. Um, Joe obviously always dreams of being a writer, but um each of them essentially achieved fame by telling the stories of their childhood for the amusement of their sisters, which is the chief, I think, similarity that I see between them Story awesome. of a soul was written for Teresa's sisters to entertain them, the memories of her childhood. But more than that, I think What I see as the deepest similarity is that in and through all of those experiences, both of them essentially discover that greatness is not found in fame and fortune, but in littleness and faithfulness and sisterly love. Um, There's a real theme that Jo's deepest maturing as a woman comes in that era where she has to deal with the sorrow of caring for a dying sister and then having lost her closest sister and just the real grief that she goes through there. And there's this real, really beautiful chapter which just describes this maturing of joy that I actually over the years have come back to again and again. But it parallels, I think, something of the, the teaching of Teresa's little way that essentially what it's about is that cheerful loving um, in little things. That faithfulness in little things that is ultimately about the character that that forms in you. Yeah, there's a real beauty about the littleness that they both discover.
0: There was that really resonates actually cat with so I watched a 2019 version in the cinema when it came out a couple of years ago. And I remember um, it was the moment but um, at the end, when, when Joe comes back from the, from the America and comes back to visit her sister and kind of in, was inspired to begin writing her childhood stories um, for Beth's sake, so kind of like to, to... It's almost like she's gone all around the world to search for fame and fortune and her way in the world, but she finds everything she needs, all the inspiration she needs, her identity back in her family home, back in hey. the, the exercise of simple love, you know, little, little hey. things with great love. And I remember in the cinema feeling my... It's like um, the smallest act of love contains the mystery and beauty and majesty of God. And Mm. that in that, Mm. at least in that moment, everything was right. Everything she needed for life, for for eternity, what was before her. So it's like, Mm. even though we kind of say, oh, little Tere, little things of great love, it's just a small, it doesn't really make much difference in the real world. Actually, in that moment when you're experiencing it, it does. You're you're encountering Mm. something of God. Mm.
1: Well, it's little in the sort of, it doesn't, um, doesn't seem to have much significance. But I don't know if you've ever tried the, the little things that Teresa of Lisier describes or even the little things that are described of Joe March after Beth dies. But I'm like, when I am feeling down, the last thing I want to do is be cheerful to other people like please don't talk to me at breakfast if I'm in a tired mood like I do not want to have a cheerful conversation just for your sake just leave me alone um well like if you're really irritating me in prayer like I I don't want to be loving about it I actually want to find a way to glare at you and um (laughs) get you to just stop like the the little things that they describe they might be little in some ways but they actually require a a real death to self, or a mega dose of self-denial or self-control to actually achieve—they're not little at all in the in the living or the doing.
0: Maybe that's why, even from a secular perspective, we love the story of Little Women because, um, like, it's it's so accessible. Greatness, um, true heroism, strength—even is, is mm. possible. Um, in the family home, in the context of how you give and receive love, especially when you're, you know, when you're feeling down, when the world's against you and you're misunderstood. Um, Mm. Yeah, it could be that, yeah, that sort of timelessness about it. Um... If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, Hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register. There's that final scene between Joe and, and we'll call him Friedrich. I remember you highlighted something there in our sort of you know casual chat before this interview. Is there something?
1: Yeah, that was, that was the other parallel that I saw. And it was it's not really a parallel. It's just, and I don't even know if it happens in the book, I went to go and have a look and got sidetracked. Um, so there's this scene in the 1994 movie which has stuck with me, where um, it's kind of the proposal scene, I think. And Friedrich holds out his hands before Joe and says, "Like I have nothing to give you, I come to you with empty hands." And she places her hands in his and says, "They're not empty now," um, which is all very beautiful and romantic. But it reminds me, um, in an in a topsy-turvy kind of way of Therese's favourite kind of thing about coming before the Lord. And what does she say? In the evening of my life I'll come before the Lord with empty hands and that she's not fussed about it at all because she'll just ask him to fill it with his graces, with his merits.
0: Yeah. I, I love, particularly for me, my own love and devotion for Therese came through the idea that she she didn't just accept her weaknesses her emptiness um, but she even learned to embrace it and to celebrate it precisely because she realized the more empty well in this case the more empty her hands were the more the lord could fill it with his love and His grace and i think that that sounds like a really simple again talking about little and great and contrasting paradox but really i think that's the that's the heart of the gospel really isn't it is yeah celebrating recognizing that we are little we are just earthenware vessels but come, you know we open it up for the lord and and, uh, and it's not empty, really. <laughs> yeah,
1: and that he doesn't expect anything more of us mm. than to be who we are. He's not kind of looking for us to earn our way anywhere. That's the thing that always catches me.
0: Yeah. Well, little Therese, that's why you are now a doctor of the church. <laughs> you have been able Absolutely. to summarise <laughs> the heart of the gospel in a couple of lines. Well, everything you say is the gospel in a couple of lines, So I hope you've enjoyed Kat's exploration of Therese and Little Women. You may remember that she mentioned a chapter she particularly loved that described um, Joe's experience after Beth's death. Uh, If you're interested, I've now left a link to that chapter in the show notes and on the Myth Pilgrim website. Um, To illustrate how Therese's Little Way is really, in fact, the veiling of true heroic virtue, I suggest maybe reading that chapter could be a good practical pilgrim exercise, one that could help you appreciate both women uh, that we've explored today. Of course, I would always highly encourage you to read um, Therese's own autobiography, The Story of a Soul, but I'll probably find another chapter of the Myth Pilgrim to uh, bring that into your attention more later on. Okay, for now, thanks for listening. Journey forth, take care, and God bless.